we're in for a long one. A long weekend, that is. And you deserve to spend it on the couch with a glass of something good. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered quickly. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com today. It's the Amalans history of rock and roll, and yet another episode where we dig back to that first meeting we had, lo, these many years ago now. <laughs> Ray Coob, along with Marcus in the Darkest. Marcus, do you remember the first time we discussed doing an episode about the unbelievable talent pool in the L.A. recording community that was known as the Wrecking Crew? Of course I remember those conversations. There's only been about a hundred of them. I know, and... The fact that we were able to figure out how to put it into one episode, I think, is an achievement. It might be a longer one episode, but we had originally talked about doing a couple of parts here and there and breaking it up into different ways. But I So say, let's jump into it so we don't waste time talking about how we're going to do it? Yes. Well, originally, they weren't really called The Wrecking Crew. There was a group of L.A. studio musicians who would be the first people you would call if you were doing a certain kind of record. And certain producers, um, Lou Adler, chief amongst them, always called these guys. They were known as the Click. Maybe the, the other players who weren't in the Click called them that. And they all seemed to get a lot of the work that was going on in L.A. And there was always a lot of recording going on in L.A. back to the 40s, right? Oh, yeah. L.A. was a hub of recording. They had so many great studios all over the place. One independent studio and a bunch of label studios. And as always, they were all at the top as far as technology goes and modern equipment goes. And people wanted to recorded these studios and that attracted the best producers the best studio engineers and the best performers the best musicians that is true and one of the many cool things about this story is there were a lot of established studio musicians that were uh -huh. older and more sophisticated and more experienced at the time, all these young uh, whippersnappers, these young up-and-comers from the Wrecking Crew were trying to break in and make their mark in the music business. And these guys were wearing suits and, you know, wearing ties and mm -hmm. all fancy, you know, dressed all fancy. And then these young studs come in in t-shirt, white t-shirts and jeans and come in and lay down these wicked rock and roll grooves. You got to go back to the early records that were recorded out there. Uh, things like Nat King Cole's Ramblin' Rose. Ramblin' Rose. Ramblin' Rose. Why you ramble? No one knows. The, the early players in the click and what they also became known as the first call gang because, hey, I don't know what we're going to do with this record. That meant they were going to pull from that pool of musicians who were already doing a large chunk of the work leading into the 1960s, which is where a lot of the records that we love and know by the Wrecking Crew came from. The name Wrecking Crew, not ironically, came from a man who is one of the main faces of the group in his autobiography, Hal Blaine, the legendary drummer who we just lost in the last couple of years, who played on so many of these records, kind of coined the phrase in his book. But he had called them the Wrecking Crew in L.A. back in those early days.
From what I've read and from what I've learned over the last few weeks and then especially over the last few years since we've started talking about the Wrecking Crew is how Blaine might have been the fundamental piece of, you know, glue that held that whole group together. He was uh-huh. special and he did a lot of arrangements and he made a big impact on the music, not only by his playing, but he added and changed things. And many of the producers really trusted him to get the job done. Like they trusted all of these musicians. Not unlike their counterparts in the Funk Brothers, a lot of them started as jazzers and worked their feels into the music that they were asked to record for artists as varied as you can conceive of. But let's just look at some of the artists, Marcus, shall we? The ones that really made the mark that you and I know, you know, other than the Sinatras and and the guys of his generation. Uh, The records by Sonny and Cher of all things, right? The beat goes on. The beat goes on. The Beach Boys, we've mentioned the Mamas and the Papas, all those Fifth Dimension records that our moms listen to. Yes. Linda Ronstadt had the Wrecking Crew play behind her. Dean Martin had the Wrecking Crew play behind him. Some of the uh, Wrecking Crew got to actually tour with uh, Ray Charles. So these kids, these young up-and-comers were no joke when it came to skills, when it came to talent when it came to abilities and when it came to groove. I may not always love you But long as there are stars above you You never need to doubt it I'll make you so sure about it God only knows what I'd be without you They all had something very special and... You hear it in thousands and thousands and thousands of songs that you know. Normally, normally, normally I would have stopped you after the first thousands, but you're not (laughs) lying, brother. I mean, I'm just looking at the stuff that's uh, that's uh, selected recordings in the early 60s, because before that, a lot of it might not make sense to people. But uh, some of the biggest records that were produced by uh, Phil Spector, who recently died, uh, like uh, the Crystals and the Ronettes, and a lot of those records were made with these musicians back in a month. The fact that they were as fundamental and important in the wall of sound is pretty, uh, is, it's mind-blowing because he, Phil Spector, kept calling in more and more musicians to make this big wall of sound <laughs> that he created. And so he'd be like, how, who do you got? And so they would keep calling in more and more members of the wrecking crew that they enjoyed playing with. And these musicians, 12 of them, crammed into a small studio laying out their sound and Phil doing what he did to create the wall of sound, you know, changing the levels and doing the production things that he did really pushed the limits. And the sound was incredible. And while it was definitely Phil Spector's idea, the reason it was executed so well is because of the musicians that laid those notes down. The Wall of Sound might have had its ultimate application on George Harrison's All Things Must Pass. When you think about the Wall of Sound there, it's thick and yet things pop out. It was really some of Spectre's best work in that regard. Because on a lot of the pop records that he recorded in those studios in L.A. in the 60s and the 50s, a lot of them were recorded in lower tech, I guess you'd say, here 
you've got some of the best technology recording, the thick wall of sound, and he managed to make it work for George, which I understand wasn't easy because he was a perfectionist to himself as well. Yeah, can you imagine those multiple perfectionist minds bat-butting heads in the studio? Wait, this is off. No, it sounds good. No, this is off. No, this is off. Oh, my goodness. But the number of records that they made and how they created those sounds in a studio that was basically, if you look at the, the, the pictures or the, or the way it's depicted in movies, most of them were these little rectangular rooms. And they would cram everybody in there to make all these amazing records like I Got You, Babe, and The Beat Goes On from Sonny and Cher. Eve of Destruction from Barry McGuire. A lot of those Mamas and Papas records. Gary Lewis and the Playboys. The Beach Boys, we were talking about this. The Beach Boys would be on the road, like you said, with Glenn Campbell, right? Yeah. And they would come back, and all the tracks would be done because the crew had been in there making them with Brian when Brian stopped touring. And then... They would walk in and there's them standing around the microphones and that actually became a point of friction within the Beach Boys when when Brian stopped touring and then Mike was like, hey man, we're the Beach Boys. And he started getting, that's where the friction between him and Brian started. But all the records, uh, the Righteous Brothers records, Frank Sinatra and Frank and Nancy Sinatra. And then I go and spoil it all by saying something stupid like I love you. The Association, the Fifth Dimension, all recorded there with members of the wrecking crew either doing the whole thing or filling in the parts that needed to be done you know you mentioned barry mcguire and uh what was the name of the song that barry mcguire uh, had eve of destruction eve of destruction which was a darker song for that time period and at first nobody thought it was gonna fly and barry mcguire and the uh, wrecking crew were like tweaked a bunch of it made it a hit the radio jumped on it and that is how the wrecking crew ended up being behind the mamas and the papas originally when Lou Adler signed the Mamas and the Papas, they recorded California Dreaming for Barry Maguire, and they were doing backup vocals. And then the label guy, mm -hmm. the producer in the studio, was like, "Wait a minute, you guys sound better." And he pulled, uh, <laughs> he pulled what's his, he pulled uh, what's his name, the guy John uh, John Phillips, uh, John Phillips. He pulled John Phillips out of the studio and said, "Even though we're going to finish recording this version, we're not releasing his version. Your version is better. We want to do your version." And then they told Barry Maguire, and Barry was like, "Hey, I understand it." your song john you got to do what you got to do but of course it stung but the wrecking crew played behind that and barry mcguire was friends with members of the wrecking crew and that's how they all met so this group of musicians was so good that they were introduced to everybody and everybody wanted them playing on their records it meant that it had a better chance of being a hit record and one of the neat things it starts to happen in the 60s and into the 70s. I mean, the prime time for the for the Wrecking Crew was 60s and 70s. Guys like Glenn Campbell start putting out their own records with all their buddies playing them, and they're all in the top ten. Yeah. By the time I get to Phoenix, she'll be rising. And then, like you mentioned, he went on the road filling in for Brian when the Beach Boys had a bunch of dates and brian said he wasn't going on the road anymore glenn campbell one of the truly unique individuals in music and i think that that was largely underappreciated until he retired and before he got sick so at least he got to see and feel some of the glory of being one of the prime people who were part of the wrecking crew and beyond that i mean finding all this stuff out you know in my later years about the music that i grew up listening to and you're like wait they didn't play on the recording. The Wrecking Crew played on the recording. Wait a minute. Right. Glenn Campbell toured with the Beach Boys instead of Brian Wilson because he was back home doing records. It's, you know, this the music business was so much crazier and so much more bizarre in so many ways back in the 60s because of those little things that they did. Jan and Dean were big with the Wrecking Crew as well. Uh, yes, they were. And you know, a lot of it, Marcus, was driven by the fact that you needed a clean take. If somebody walked into the studio and the door squeaked in the middle, cut. Yep. Right? And, you know, we mentioned the Beach Boys, and you mentioned Linda Ronstadt. They also played as or with 
the Stone Ponies, who is Linda's group when she first started. The Buffalo Springfield was involved in adjacent. You remember the Playboys? Yes. Gary Lewis and the Playboys? They were the players on most of those records. They were the band playing in the Partridge family, both on the TV show and on the records. Think about that. And they played as the band on a couple records from the Monkees, another band that didn't really have a, a band at the time being a creation for TV. They also were involved in uh, Mr. Tambourine Man. They played the instruments behind McGuinn. I heard something about that when I was going through and researching it, and I thought that was interesting, and it also reflects what we're talking about, that they were used as augmenters and also as providers of the musical backing for the tracks that were being made, partially because of the difference in the way records were being made in L.A. in the 60s. That caused that. And before this time of plenty, Marcus, in the 60s and 70s, they were cutting sessions like crazy. And there were people who were more instrumental in setting up this network than Carol Kay as a bass player, yet she is the face of bass players and women inside the session scene of this era. And think about the number of records that she played on. You've also got Hal Blaine, of course. I, I I don't know that you could ever do it, Marcus. I guess there's sheets of this stuff, but I would love to know how many sessions that Hal Blaine and Carol Kay played together in their time. And while they're the most well-known people, there are other drummers and other bass players who contributed throughout the history of the Wrecking Crew. Now, there's some dispute about Earl Palmer as a drummer. Technically, he may not be considered a member of the Wrecking Crew. Some say he is. He did some sessions that fit the profile, but he did way more than just do studio work. He was an artiste to the people he joined on sessions in many cases. We had a love, a love, a love you don't find every day. So don't, 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 don't let it slip away. He was kind of a mini arranger, it sounds like, like most of these uh, musicians in the Wrecking Crew, where they would be working on a song that the producer laid out to them, and they'd be like, hey, can we try this? Hey, can we try that? They really seem to have a lot of input in the music and the final output at the end of the day. Like, this record has a Tommy Tedesco feeling, or why don't we get Earl Palmer? His feel would be great on... River Deep and Mountain High from Ike and Tina is one of the records he did. He plays the drums on You've Lost That Love and Feeling for the Righteous Brothers, which is just some amazing work. The musicians are what really make the song stand out. While we have these great vocal performances by many of them, it's the music that makes these songs really pop. And swing, brother. It, the drummers make it swing. That's true. And, so, and some of the other guys who were involved, uh, Joe Porcaro. Yeah who we mentioned recently because he's the uh, Papa Bear of the Toto gang, all the uh, Percaro brothers yeah. who became session guys just like Dad, right? Frank Capp, uh, an American jazz drummer who also did a lot of rock and roll sessions, John Clauder, other guys who played drums, uh, Gary Coleman playing the vibraphone on some of those records, especially in the 50s and early 60s, right? Yep, you had Plas Johnson on sax. Seals and Crofts were members of the Wrecking Crew for a short time as they came out. They came out to L.A. as songwriters and wanted to make it just like everybody else that wasn't from L.A. that wanted to make it as songwriters. And Seals playing sax and Crofts playing drums got to play on a few records, and then they started doing their solo work in the 70s, which are the songs that we know from FM radio in the 70s. They probably got some of the crew to play on those, but there's always people that were needed in sessions. And Milt Holland got credits on Wrecking Crew projects. And drummer Jimmy Keltner, who is a central figure in 70s rock and roll, his work continued. And he became friends with Blaine. And then we get some gigs working and ended up working with Lennon. And uh, he's played with everybody. If we want to do an episode about Jim Keltner, the drummer, we could go on for a while. 
if you look at the, not only the list of records that he played on, the artists that he played with, former members of a little group called the Beatles, he is the honorary drummer in the Traveling Wilburys. They affectionately oh. referred to him as Buster Sideberry. That's amazing. But that's where, you know, starting with the Wrecking Crew and working your way through and becoming a session guy post-Wrecking Crew, technically, uh, can develop. And Jim Keltner is widely considered by so many of uh, L.A. session drummers and musicians and artists who base themselves there as the go-to guy when they needed a drummer on their records. Just go look. You'll see what I'm talking about. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, Marcus, he played with three out of the four Beatles. And don't ask me why he didn't play on a McCartney record. He didn't. Why? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, these guys played on incredible records. Like, just doing the research about some of the musicians, Carol Kay's first gig was playing with Sam Cooke. That was her first professional gig because somebody at the studio saw her playing in a jazz club and was like we need you to play so hush little baby don't you cry you know who else was in the uh, wrecking crew that i didn't know it went solo leon russell Oh yeah, he had a, he played under a different name. Um, Russell Bridges, I think, was his name as a Wrecking Crew member, and then he changed his name to Leon Russell. We'll have to get the research department to find out what his original name is. Research department. Well, here are some of the names you may not know. There were major players in the Wrecking Crew at various times. Uh, got a great article I found on You Discover Music. It really gave me a lot of detail I didn't have. People like Barney Kessel. That's a name I know, but I don't know him. Plus Johnson, Al Casey. You know James Burton. Mm -hmm. He's a legend, right? Larry Nectar, Jack Nietzsche, who would go on to become a producer out of his work there. They actually did all the work on Nietzsche's record, which was on a playlist that I found on Spotify. Mike Melvoin, Don Randy, Al DeLore, Billy Strange, Howard Roberts, Jerry Cole, all names you don't know that well that all are in your ears when you put on that oldies playlist that you play off your uh, your phone when you're jogging. Louis Shelton, Mike Deasy, Bill Pittman, Lyle Rich, Chuck Berghofer, Joe Osborne, Ray Pullman, Jim Gordon, Chuck Finley, great horn player. These are all players who made their name as members of the Wrecking Crew. Ironically, Jim Horn, also a horn player. I also want to talk about Tommy Tedesco. Because his role as one of the main guitar players in the fold of the Wrecking Crew uh, kind of expanded their position, if you want to call it that, by putting them a lot in the way of work of film and, um, and television, right? Yeah. So these are the people that, and it's just really, we're scratching the surface with those names, uh, who comprise part of the Wrecking Crew. And, and um, like we talked about earlier, a lot of people would graduate out of that, go on to form other bands, go on to do their own thing. And uh, maybe none is most notoriously as Glenn Campbell, who we mentioned earlier. True. Glenn Cl Campbell had a very incredible career outside of the Wrecking Crew. But when you dropped all those names, seriously, it felt like a name droppers convention when you dropped all those names of the members of the Wrecking Crew because there's some serious names and every single one of them is worthy of an episode because of their impact on music. But Glenn Campbell, his story is incredible. Not only was he a an excellent songwriter, but his, his guitar work is magnificent, just beautiful. And... Mm -hmm. He had that ear. He grew up very poor in Arkansas. Used to get beaten a lot by his dad for not working. And eventually he was like, screw this, I'm out of here. And then his uncle took him on the road with him. They got stranded in Wyoming, ran out of money. Then he had another family member in New Mexico hire him to play music. And he played music there for a while. Ended up sort of dead ending and then moving to L.A. And then things started rolling for him there. But yeah, and he was that kid who could pick up music's, music as a little kid and like pick up an instrument, hear sounds, and then play them. I think that's a talent that belongs to a lot of musical geniuses. 
it just happens and they can't even explain it. Here's a great quote from guitarist Bill Pittman, who is part of the wrecking crew. He said, you leave the house at seven o'clock in the morning and you're at universal at nine till noon. Now you're at Capitol records at one. You just got time to get there. Then you got a jingle at four. Then we're on a date with somebody at eight. Then the beach boys at midnight. And you do that five days a week. Jeez, man, you get burned out. <laughs> wow. But that's the life. And guess what? These guys set the pattern for that. And later in the seventies, whether it's uh, Steve Lukather or uh, the Porcaro boys or Wadi or any of the people that you know as prominent s- session people, they tried to line that stuff up the same way. When you had a busy day, you leave the house at 7, you get home at 5 a.m. after working with the Beach Boys. And the idea was to have that kind of a day as many days as you could because when you added it up, the checks were sweet. Oh, yeah, and they were all unions, so they got overtime pay after a certain time, and the money just rolled in at those times. Now, one of the things about the Wrecking Crew is that they could handle just about anything you threw at them, from pop music to rock to Sinatra with the swing flair. They had different players who could step in and play with anybody, right? Like Chuck Finley is an example. He played with Stanley Tarantino, Freddie Hubbard, and Lalo Schifrin, all top-notch guys regularly. And so they acquired their knowledge and experience alongside some of the people who are legends in their own right. They didn't play on all the Elvis records, but they did play on one of our favorites, Viva Las Vegas! And didn't the Wrecking Crew also plan the Blue Hawaii soundtrack as well? You know, one question I have, Marcus, is at least for a long time, why was Carol Kay the only woman involved? It was, I mean, I know she's one of the greatest at what she does. She can play all kinds of instruments. I never understood whether it was just that she was that great or whether there were just not other women who were up to the level that she and the other members of the Wrecking Crew had until later, maybe? I think there were other women that could play at the level that Carol Kay did. I just think that she was very determined. I think that's what she wanted to do. Right. And she went for it. I also believe that as we can tell, it was very much a male-dominated industry. As we was it ever? And like, oh. and it still is today. Don't let anybody fool you. Women are still making a lot of great breakthroughs and doing more. It is still a male-dominated industry, and then it was even more so male-dominated. But Carol proved that she was one of the guys, and she played with the best of them, equally or better than most. And. Her proficiency, her sound, her style, the emotion that she gave off when she played. Her all. diversity, her her diverse abilities to play just about any sound like we talk about all the time. They could play the sounds that they hear or that you put in their head immediately. It's great. Yep. It's great. It's what makes a session musician so valuable. Before we take it to the break and catch a cold one, a crooked eye, there's one other name that was part of the wrecking crew and then went on to solo superstardom hall of fame superstardom one of my favorites too old mac rebenack started out as a member of the wrecking crew that's right the one and only the night tripper dr john what that's right what was his wrecking crew name well his real name mac rebenack wow i did not know dr john was part of that his sound is aren't so we amazing. having fun now <laughs> I didn't in the research. I did not see his name come across at all, so I missed and that. And you know what? I never knew about Larry Nectum is that he later joined Bread. He I knew that he played on probably a lot of the records, but I never realized he actually joined the group Bread out of his work from the Wrecking Crew. That's crazy. Baby, I'ma want you. Baby, I'ma need you. You're the only one I care enough to hurt. I'm learning all kinds of stuff since we really started digging into this, buddy. I didn't know he was a member of the Wrecking Crew either, and I still have my parents' bread albums from the 70s in my stack of records, so... <laughs> Let them Maybe stay I'm a there. Maybe I'll want you. <laughs> Don't 
do it. Okay, You're putting an earworm in my head, and the next thing I know, I'll be walking around, and Maurice will come down from her lunch break, and she'll be like, why are you singing bread? Somebody planted the evil bug in my ear. Oh, yes. This uh, podcast is getting well-known for planting earworms with some of the stuff that we cook up. I want to talk to you guys about the movie they made, uh, the documentary about the Wrecking Crew. It was made by Denny Tedesco. Denny is the son of Tommy Tedesco, uh, the king and the man who really was the the focal point at the beginning of the Wrecking Crew, considered the king of the L.A. session guitarists in his time. It is the imbalanced history of rock and roll. Are you having fun We're, uh, talking about the Wrecking Crew, pal? Of course I'm having a blast talking about the Wrecking Crew. And in the second half, I have a great story involving a member of the Wrecking Crew, Ray Charles, and George Wallace's Alabama. It is crazy. That's what's coming up on the imbalanced history of rock and roll. Well, we're bouncing into the new year, and there's always a lot going on at Crooked Eye Brewery right there in the heart of Hatboro, York, and Montgomery. A great place to go and get the finest brews in the Philadelphia area. Right, Marcus? Yes, they are. And if you like a dark beer, this is the season for something like their Black Eyed Stout. Fantastic. My favorite of all their beers, even though I've tried many of them. Go right into the brew pub right there in the heart of Hatboro and see what's on the board. Take a taste of the stout or anything else and uh, take some home with you, even if you're staying for a pint. And the entertainment's coming back, too. Tony Washington and the Tuesday Night Blues Jam has been starting to happen again. A lot more things happening in real time live in the pub and also sent out via the uh, the Facebook page for Crooked Eye Brewery. Live entertainment returning to Crooked Eye as we get closer and closer to full normal resume at some point. And whatever's going on with that, you can find out on their social media, especially on Facebook, Crooked Eye Brewery, a great place, a neighborhood joint, so to speak. Hepper, you're so lucky because you can just take a walk over anytime and grab a pint of Crooked Eye. I'm jealous. I got to drive. <laughs> <laughs> and if you mention the imbalanced history of rock and roll, you get a free 10-ouncer. It's like a big taster. Hello, may I please have my free 10-ouncer because I listen to the imbalanced history of rock and roll. And we thank Crooked Eye Brewery for their support. You know what I noticed? I'm looking at you on the Skype. You're wearing your new AKG gear. Your I, headphones, what I, are they? I am. It's the new AKG Lyra microphone, and then the cans I'm wearing are the K371. So they're sweet, man. I've been seeing AKG's name everywhere, like in TV commercials and stuff. Uh, it's because the AKG Lyra really helps people who are trying to uh, do audio from home for work or start a podcast, all kinds of stuff that people are doing with audio these days that they weren't doing before. So AKG Lyra could be the answer for a lot of people because they're great headphones. You know, they sound good. And then you got that cool looking microphone. Yeah. Yes, and the microphone's fantastic. As radio professionals, we know the quality of the AKG microphone, along with the fact that it's so easy to plug into your computer, and then you plug your headphones into the microphone, and you are good to go as far as recording a podcast, recording vocals, reading, whatever the case may be. It is easy to use and high quality. Boy, Ray, that pint tasted so nice. I am refreshed mm -hmm. and ready to go in the second half of The Wrecking Crew. How about you? I was born ready, man. Doing the research and getting ready for this episode, I keep, kept finding more and more little tidbits of juicy information out. And one of the things that I figured out is that I don't know if it's really possible to put a number on the number of songs that the Wrecking Crew was involved in because, for example, Dick Clark helped get Chubby Checker off the map, who was a Fats Domino knockoff, and members of the Wrecking Crew recorded the twist behind Chubby Checker. I never knew that. What? I know. I found that out in the great Wrecking Crew book by Ken Hartman, and these little tidbits of information that he threw out just kept me kept me saying what throughout the entire reading hottest dance sensation in the last four years a thing called the twist ladies and gentlemen here's chubby checker
coming out of that session, they actually did get credit on Chubby Checker's Limbo Rock. Every limbo boy and girl all around the limbo world gonna do the limbo rock. Something that's come across my dashboard in the last week while we're prepping for this. I went, wait a minute. I know this record. Of course, I was very, very small. I was laying in my crib and no, I'm kidding. I was about four. But. A song like Limbo Rock by Chubby Checker and the Twist, man, we were all about that because Ernest Evans was from near Philly. He grew up and lived around here. He was a local guy who had worked as a meat cutter, a butcher, and then caught on and became very close to Mr. Clark, very close to Mr. Clark. Yeah, so the fact that the Wrecking Crew was tied into American Bandstand and Dick Clark and all that just shows you the reach of this little powerful group of musicians. There's a part of me that wants to say, of course they are. It seems as if their tendrils reach into everything. And part of that started from the nature of the quote that I read earlier about the day that a member of the wrecking crew could have. And one of the guys who set the pace for that was Tommy Tedesco. Uh, Tommy Tedesco, as I mentioned earlier, is known as the king of the L.A. session guitarist in the day. His son, Denny Tedesco, upon the diagnosis of terminal cancer for his dad, in 1996, realized that a lot of these people are getting older. A lot of them are getting sick. They've been living hard <laughs> for a long time, I'm sure. So he began the process of filming his dad, and that led to filming other members of the group and other members of the group and people who were adjacent, you know, the Lou Adlers of the world, right? And I was one of these late starters in life. I wasn't one of these guys that uh, you read about in the books. You know, you read these articles in Guitar Player magazine, the guy says, well, when I was 12 years old, I had the chops of uh, reindeer and all this stuff. You know. <laughs> yeah. well, when I was 12 years old, I was playing marbles myself. I don't know, you know. And when I was 24, I was at Douglas Aircraft, you know, moving boxes and trying to play guitar. I was 24, I was still into this. And, wow, I'm in a seventh position. And, and I finally learned one hip chord. So all of a sudden, he's got all this film of his dad and the players and the musicians they played with and the producers. And that's where the movie came from, the uh, Wrecking Crew documentary. And of course, Carol's in there. And we love her. She's great. And she doesn't get the credit that she deserves for her role in rock and roll music. And men still keep on marching up to war. The beat goes on. Drums keep pounding a rhythm to the brain. You know, Tommy does too because of some of the things that he opened doors on, like getting musicians to work on TV work. Uh, a perfect example is the theme to the Pink Panther, right? One of the wrecking crew, saxophonist Plaus Johnson. That whole thing, the whole solo thing is him. And Hal Blaine. By the way, that's Hal Blaine on the drums, too. Not I mean, they're the kind of things that Tommy started to get going as one of the early guys in the scenes. It's one of those things where you see it developing around you as a musician, and then you go, what the fuck's going on here? And then it's happening. And I think by the time the 60s came and all those records were being made, they didn't even know they would be so much in demand. Dick Clark, we mentioned him, right? Yep. Here's a quote he has about the Wrecking Crew. I wish I could do it, Dick Clark, in person. <laughs> I had no idea that certain people didn't play on their own records till the Monkees, dubbed the pre-Fab Four as opposed to the Beatles of Fab Four fame, came along. It says a lot, doesn't it? It does. That the facade that the business was creating for the artist was working. It was holding, despite the fact that there were about 30, 40 of the hardest working sons of bitches in L.A. as the sound backing up the vocalist on almost all of it, if not all of it. The fact that we're finding out more and more how many songs that they played on as ghost musicians keeps growing.
If I'm not mistaken, they played the in some of the instruments on Light My Fire, The Doors. And there were a few other songs that they have played on over the years that we keep finding out about. The Doors, as an example, didn't have a bass player, so they often employed an outside bass player, uh, even trying to get a full-time bass player added to the group at one point. Uh, so there were always studio needs in L.A. and New York with the two main locations. Detroit obviously had its own thing going on, too. And while there was recording going on in Chicago, at this point in time, 1962, three through the early 70s, that little circle of studios, producers, and musicians was the hottest goddamn thing you could be in. Bigger than almost any band, bigger than any stand-up singer, they were the backbone of the industry. That's just mind-blowing to wrap your head around the fact that this group of musicians played such a huge part in the growth the expansion and the changes in rock and roll over the 60s and 70s this group were fundamental players in all of that here's denny tedesco talking about his dad he said dad would get a call from the answering service are you available for such and such a date the producer might be snuff garrett lou adler or whomever the answering service would tell him what instruments would be needed, and he went to work. At that point, they would just record and go to the next gig. Many times, the artist might not even be there, or maybe the artist was a newcomer that didn't have any hits at all. So it really became that, like that scene in Love and Mercy where they're laying down everything, and as crazy and creative as that gets, the singer walks in, or singers, and walks to the microphone and does their part but it's all produced on two tracks behind them. Some impressive stuff in the day of four-track recording, bro. I'm just saying. <laughs> they got the most out of those four-track recorders in those days. And here's a big difference in why it took so long for people to truly discover the, the depth and breadth of the Wrecking Crew. In Detroit, you had Motown, who hired every musician, you know, in their circumference, in their neighborhood, right? Mm -hmm. They'd bring people in, sure, but they pretty much used the Funk Brothers. And they were the label, or labels, and there was their talent pool. Here, in L.A., you had all different talent pool used for all different projects, differently by each producer, differently by each artist. And the fact is, is that when you look at it, that's why we couldn't figure out what the hell was going on, <laughs> or even like the details of it. And I don't know. I think you're right. You, you put throughout the supposition that maybe we'll never know exactly who played on what when it came to all those 60s records that the Wrecking Crew members were joining on the fly. I have this picture in my head, okay? It's Carol Kay. She's hanging around the house in the 60s, you know, she's dressed very sharply, probably in those stretch slacks with a flowery blouse, having a smoke, phone rings. Somebody needed somebody to play some bass lines. There's Carol grabbing the axe and running out of the house, smoke falling her out the door. Yep. Ma, can you watch the kids for a little bit? I got to hit the studio again. <laughs> they, I'm sure that they got phone calls like that, and they didn't have the technology we have. They just had that rotary phone ringing, so if somebody was on the phone in their house, they missed a call. They didn't even have call waiting. Somebody always had to be there. That's why they had services, though. That's why the, that was one of the early things in L.A. was there was a musician's service where you could be part of that. You would pay them. They would get your messages from the, the studios or the producers or the artists and uh, facilitate all that. Mm -hmm. Actors had it, too. That kind of thing started early on. I'm thinking that there aren't that many of those services left in Definitely. Hollywood these days. Definitely not. You've got your own personal assistant if you're at that level, and they're the ones who are on the clock 24-7 for you. So, <laughs> Oh, Marcus, I got a text from the research department. Your question about Leon Russell. It's good to have them back, by the way. Uh, he was born Claude Russell Bridges, uh, April 2nd, 1942. And we lost him a few years back. And before he left us, he gave us The Union, an album he did with Elton John, who cites him as one of his main influences on piano. I knew from the first night I met you Something just wasn't quite right Love like an innocent stranger Something was just out of sight uh, The great Leon Russell, who was indeed part of the Wrecking Crew. I was blown away by that when I found that out in the research that we did for this episode. I was like, oh, my goodness. 
people were always learning on our end. So if you're learning too, that's really good. Let's talk about members of this wrecking crew, Marcus. The bass players, we focus on Carol, but there's also Larry Nectel, who we talked about, and Joe Osborne, Max Bennett, who became pretty well known as a session player all through his life, Bill Pittman, who we mentioned earlier, Ray Pullman, Bob West. And they had some upright players, too, like Lyle Ritz and Red Callender, Jimmy Bond and Chuck Berghofer. And you have the drummers like Hal Blaine, Jim Gordon, Jim Keltner, Earl Palmer. Joe Percaro and John Clauder, too. They're the, pretty much the, the guys that were the backbone of this whole thing. The number of guitar players, it'll blow your mind because a lot of them went on to do other things. Uh, Bill Aiken, Doug Bartonfeld, Ben Benet, Vinnie Bell. Dennis Budimir, and James Burton, the great James Burton, and Glenn Campbell, Al Casey. David Cohen, Jerry Cole, Mike Deasley, John Goldthwaite, Carol Kay, who not only played bass, she played guitar guitar too. Barney Kessel, Lou Morrill, Don Peake, and I've got a great Don Peake story. His life was changed in 1959 when he heard Ray Charles, What I'd Say. Grew up in Brownsville, Pennsylvania. Don Peak, man, his story is crazy. After becoming a member of the Wrecking Crew and playing in a few sessions, he got a call from Ray Charles' manager saying, I need you to play. And at that point, Ray Charles had had no white musicians with him. And he told the manager, but I'm white. And Ray Charles' manager said, but can you play? And he said, yes. Said, I expect to see you down here for the audition. So he showed up at the audition. He got hired. And they were doing wow. the, they were doing the tour, and at that time there was heavy segregation. When you see me in misery, come on, baby, see George Wallace's Alabama was a grossly segregated and racist state, and if a person of color was seen in the presence of a white person, that could be a death sentence for him in that Alabama. Well, they were they had just landed at the airport in Montgomery, and they were going to the venue. And they were stopped by state police. And they had to find out why. And the whispering was is because they heard that there was a white guy on the bus. And there was no way they were going to let a white guy play with a bunch of people of color in George Wallace's Alabama. So the state police were going to pull him off the bus. Which Don Peake said that if they would have pulled me off the bus, I wouldn't be here today. So, Ray Charles... Just in case case anybody who's listening has to wonder even a little bit why the stench of racism pisses us off on a moment's notice. You can hear it in my voice right Mm -hmm. now. Shit like this is why. And it's only underlined how I always felt as we do our research into that period of time when the races were first starting to work together in music and entertainment and what they had to put up with. Yes, just awful. So Ray Charles, thinking on his feet, said, he's Spanish. <laughs> and hey, I, mean, I, I kid Ray you, Charles. I he kid you not. And he was Ray Charles was banking on the fact that these hillbilly police officers were so stupid that they would think that Spanish was non-white. And so Don Peake started mumbling in Spanish under his hat, and they were like, they had a powwow and were like, okay, he's Spanish, let him go. And that's how he got to play in Montgomery. Wow. There were other guitar players that didn't take that bus ride to Montgomery (laughs) with Ray. We also mentioned Dr. John earlier. That's right. He did work as a guitarist as well. Howard Roberts and Irv Rubens, Louis Shelton, P.F. Sloan, Billy Strange, Al Viscovo, and the king of them all, Tommy Tedesco on guitar. That's a lot of guitar players adding to the mix. That's a huge list of guitar players. One of those guys is on the list of prominent keyboard players in the crew, too. Larry Nectel, uh, Al DeLore, Mike Melvoin, Don Randy, Dr. John again, yep. uh, Mike Rubini, and, of course, the great Leon Russell. Man, when you talk about a bunch of guys who could rock the 88... Serious keyboard players. But you hear it in the songs that they play. You hear the the beautiful keyboards in all of the Wrecking Crew songs that that use keyboards. And the list of percussionists is pretty amazing. Um, In fact, Max Weinberg in his book called The Big Beat includes a list of all the members of the Wrecking Crew percussionists. And it's a a long list. And you look at uh, Larry Bunker and Frank Capp, Gary Coleman, Gene Estes, Victor Feldman, Milt Holland, 
the legend, the great Joe Percaro, who just passed away in the last year, right? Uh, Julius Wechter, another name you don't really know, but he's on a lot of records you do know. Yeah. Jack Nietzsche was involved both as a conductor and arranger. There were a lot of strings involved, and Jack had a lot of really great feels for that. For Think about the strings on the records we're going to start talking about, and you think of Jack Nietzsche and tell me that that guy isn't one of the greatest of all time. Can't argue with you on that one. His arrangements are magnificent. Blowing the horn, the saxophone, you have Alan Wettler, Gene Cipriano, Steve Douglas, Billy Green, Jim Horn, Plas Johnson, who we've mentioned a few times already, yep. Jackie Klesko, John Lowe, Jay Migliori, Nino Tempo. That's some serious And a lot of those play. guys would go on into the 70s and beyond doing stuff, as would the uh, slide guys like Richard Hyde and Lou McCreary and Dick Nash, trumpeters like Bud Brisbois and Roy Catone, Chuck Finley, the great Chuck Finley on a lot of rock records, Ali Mitchell, Tony Terran, Jim Horn, who could play just about everything, but also played flute on a lot of records, Tommy Morgan, all kinds of great players. And that list is not complete. Marcus, I don't think it's complete. Do you? No, there's got there have to be other musicians that did not get credit. I know we see Sonny Bono got credit because he played tambourine on one of the songs for Phil Spector, so he got a tambourine credit, which makes him a percussionist in the Wrecking Crew. You know, <laughs> I get it. There's no limit to membership. It's yep. universal and wide and deep, and it reaches out very far. Yep. And, you know, you mentioned Jim Horn, the flute player, and one of the moments that I think really stands out with him is the flute in California Dreaming. The work that they did was so monolithic that it's hard to distinguish sometimes, but that is some of the finest stuff right there. Yeah. Way to pick that out and put it up on the board, bro. Thanks. To add a little bit of uh, juice to this one, we want to know what your five favorite Wrecking Crew songs are. We're going to give you a very quick rundown of our five favorites, but oh, yeah? we also want to know what your five favorites are. Yeah. You think it's going to be quick? <laughs> it's going to have to be because <laughs> it's going to be a really long episode if it's not. Here's the dilemma. When you first mentioned five favorites out of the Wrecking Crew library, you said it's got to be 10. So I automatically <laughs> went to work on my, my, my 10, okay? Then I realized it was almost all Beach Boys records. <laughs> you could easily make a top five uh, Wrecking Crew Beach Boys songs. And that is exactly what I've done, my dear Marcus, is I've got my five favorite Beach Boys. I've got my five favorite George Harrison records. And then I've also got assorted lists of uh, you, what I call unique records that they were a part of. And then I did, because of all that, I did whittle it down to five favorites and then about 10 honorable mentions. <laughs> you see what my dilemma is then here, right? Totally. It's an easy dilemma to have when you when you're deal, when you're trying to whittle down five favorites out of thousands and thousands and thousands of songs that you like. It's really hard to do so. So, this is what I'm going to do while you're finishing up, I can see your writing. Uh, while you're finishing up your five. I'm going to give my five there's no Beach Boys in my top 5. But my five favorite Wrecking Crew Beach Boy songs, starting at number five, Catch a Wave. Catch a wave and you're sitting on top of the world. Maybe the ultimate surfer rock song. You're standing on top of the world when you catch that wave. Pretty cool. My number four, I Can Hear Music. This is the It is melodic and sweet and delicious. Number three, Don't Worry Baby. It's the ultimate romantic girl I love you song. Except for my number two, which is... God only knows. I may not always love you. My number one Beach Boy song, In My Room. 
So I'm taking that. I'm pulling one of your your five favorite moves here, Marcus. <laughs> and I'm taking those five and I'm putting them on the top. Okay. Of my of my five favorites. So now I feel so much better having said that. Can yeah. I can I give you real quick? Give you my George Harrison five favorite no. record no. songs. You We're sure? gonna have to wait. I'm ready. All right. Um. All right. I'll get the other ones in. No, <laughs> I'll get I'll get the other ones in later. Get it. Okay. So you're ready to go then? I'm ready to go. Do we have time to check with Vegas? Yes, we do. I have the line for you. All righty then. All right. We're going out to Vegas and uh, we're waiting for the word. It's coming back. Point five. What is the line? What? Point five is the Point line. Point five, which means either we have to have none or a one or more in common. How many do you think we're going to have in common? Zero. I'm going to say two. Okay. I'm going to say two. Okay. So it's point five line and Marcus says zero. I say two. And now. Your number five. My number five is Gypsies, Tramps, and Thieves, Sonny and Cher. Picked up a boy, just saw the mobile, gave him a ride, filled him with a hot meal. I was 16, he was 21. Rode with us to Memphis, and Papa would have shot him if he knew what he'd done. Wow. Didn't see that coming? And it's a great record. Loved it as a kid. Saw it on the Sunny and Share review as a kid and fell in love with that song right away. That means I give my number five and then my number four. That curve. is correct. My number five from the Mamas and the Papas, California Dreaming, dude. That song's magnificent and magical, and it gives me goosebumps and sometimes tears me up every time I hear it. Your number four? My number four is probably my favorite song from this group, and I didn't realize that they were a studio project like they were. The Grassroots. And Midnight Confessions, my number four. Wow. Was not expecting that one, but great choice. It has something to do with Monday nights at my cousin's house in Croydon, just playing the hell out of 45s. And that was one that was always in heavy rotation. So there's my number four. What's your number four of your five favorite Wrecking Crew tracks? My number four is that sexy older lady who seduces the young boy, Mrs. Robinson, Simon and Garfunkel. Your number four is my number three. <laughs> they were the band. The Wrecking Crew was the band for Simon and Garfunkel on uh, Here's to You, Mrs. Robinson from The Graduate and all that good stuff. So, And that's uh, my number three uh, from uh, Simon and Garfunkel. Which means we need your number two. My number two goes back to the early days of The Wrecking Crew. He was part of the day the music died. It's La Bamba from Richie Valens, my number two Wrecking Crew track. Oh, what a great one. I forgot that that one was on the list and I'm looking right at it. Ha, 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 ha. My number three is... is... Good Vibrations, the Beach Boys. I'm picking up good vibrations. She's giving me the excitations. I'm picking up good vibrations. She's giving me the excitations. Good vibrations. I can't go wrong there. And I remember hearing it as a kid and just being blown away by the vocals. And my number two, I think, is going to catch you off guard as well. Neil All Diamond, right. Cracklin' Rosie. Oh, I love my Rosie child. You got the way to make me happy. You and me, we go in style. Cracklin' Rose, you're a store-bought woman. But you make me sing like a guitar humming. So hang on to me. You know, I'm not as thrown off as you think. 
Uh, I am a little bit thrown off by the Cracklin' Rosie, although I do love that as far as a Neil Diamond song goes. Uh, and he is in a lot of my notes, but didn't otherwise get mentioned. He's one of the artists that really got supported by the Wrecking Crew with all of his big hits. So mm-hmm. your number two, Neil Diamond. That leads us to your number one. Which makes you absolutely 100% correct on your Vegas picks of two. It is California Dreamin' by the Mamas and the Papas. And as I've said before, this song holds a very, very, very special place in my heart and always will. It's my favorite of the Wrecking Crew songs. It's awesome. There's no doubt about it. And it belongs (laughs) on any list like this. And that leads to my number one, and it might not surprise you, might surprise some of our listeners, though, that Glenn Campbell, Galveston, is the epitome, in my opinion, of what the Wrecking Crew is all about. Perfect choice for number one, and Glenn Campbell should be in at least one of our top fives because of his greatness. Galveston, oh Galveston. I still hear your sea winds blowing I still see her dark eyes glowing She was 21 when I left Galveston He was a member of the Wrecking Crew that they helped to graduate to superstar status. We discussed him a little bit here earlier in the episode and sadly lost his life to Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. uh, a great man at the end, the things he did to create awareness about that disease. I, I, I toast you, Glenn Campbell, mm-hmm. and you're my number one five favorites from the Wrecking Crew era with Galveston. I could have picked two or three other records there, too. Mm-hmm. Oh, you mentioned honorable mentions. What you got there, bro? Uh, Tiny Tim, tiptoe through the tulips. Yeah, <laughs> Seriously, anything by Simon and Garfunkel, Neil Diamond, The Carpenters. um, No Carpenters, man. No Carpenters here. I like The Carpenters. Fifth Dimension, I really like. My dad was into them. The Beach Boys, anything by them. Well, now you're being just a broad swipe. I know, but... but Here's what I got for you. My number one honorable mention almost made my top five was Lucille from Little Richard, a session that the members of the crew were a part of. Uh. Next up up is Barry Maguire, Eve of Destruction. Yeah. Uh, That's Life from Frank. That's Wrecking Crew, man. That's prime Wrecking Crew, 60s, right... uh, Reprise records, Frank, you know? River Deep Mountain High, Ike and Tina. I know. Righteous Brothers, You've Lost That Loving Feeling, Ooh. almost made my top five because it's so sweet. You mentioned Carol and Sam Cooke in the session for her. His version of You Send Me. One of those songs I remember from the youngest age. That's so that's serious the music. long reach uh, of the Wrecking Crew. And the stuff we've talked about in the last little bit, it's it's like wonderfully exhausting because we have had, and I'm not shitting you folks, if we've had one, we've had a hundred conversations about the Wrecking Crew and have had them on our list to discuss for a long time. And I don't think we're done, brother. No, I, I definitely think don't think done. we are. No, we have a long way to go. We have to break down some of these individual players and then maybe even go into some of these groups as well, like the Beach Boys and some of their oh, albums, yeah. like Pet Sounds, we have to break down at some point. So, And those are all on our list. All of these uh, more specific Wrecking Crew episodes and bands and albums tied to the Wrecking Crew are on our list. You guys are going to be with us till we're 80. <laughs> lucky, lucky <laughs> you. I want to give him homework, Marcus. Go to your Spotify, Pandora, whatever service that you uh, stream music on. I found an amazing Wrecking Crew list on Spotify. Uh, just type in the Wrecking Crew. It'll pop right up. Trust me, it's got hundreds of songs. So you go through, start listening there. Or maybe you already have your five favorite Wrecking Crew tracks just from our conversation or from what you know. So you can email them in to imbalancehistory at gmail.com or, you know, find us on Facebook or on Twitter, you can let us know there, too. Facebook's a little easier to post up that kind of shit. So uh, so reach out and touch us there on Gmail. And we're starting to see a lot more contact from our friends and, and family around the world. And we are excited to hear from all of you. So thank you for that. Yes, thank you. Any final thought on the Wrecking Crew before we go? 
Yeah, I'm excited to play a lot of these songs for our son because there's so many good songs that I think he'll appreciate and dance and sing to that will help increase and encourage a love for music. So I'm excited to play a lot of these Wrecking Crew songs for our son because they're great. Part of part of our responsibility as parents, and in my case also grandparents, is to pass along musical legacies so that when our kids and our grandkids hear these songs, they recognize them. And then what it'll also do is plant a seed in their mind that'll make them remember you as the person who shared it with them. Music is a powerful communicator. It's also a powerful bonder. So for us all to be bonding over the power of rock and roll makes it extra special as well. So thank you for connecting with us and your love for music, too. It makes a huge difference. Hats off to the Wrecking Crew, one of the greatest assemblage of musicians for the greater good in the history of mankind. It's true. (laughs) I'm the Doc, Ray Coob. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. And this is the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. At Discount Tire, we know your time is valuable. Get 30% shorter average wait time when you buy and book online. Did you know Discount Tire now sells wiper blades? Check out our current deals at DiscountTire.com or stop in and talk to an associate today. Discount Tire. Let's get you taken care of. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.